section, Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey there, welcome back. This is episode 20. Today, I'm talking to Laura France. I recorded this interview a few weeks ago, and I was just, oh my goodness, I read Laura's book, her new book, Tidewater Bride, which is coming out January 5th. And it was wonderful. And then I talked to Laura, and she is the sweetest, kindest person you will ever meet. Laura France, she wanted to be introduced as a reluctant writer pursuing God's grace. So when you hear our interview, when she um, when she talks about how she got started, you'll understand why she calls herself a reluctant writer. I just had so much fun talking to her. Now, you may notice there were some technical difficulties we had. We had, oh my goodness, it took us probably half an hour at least to finally get to a point where we could record because Laura's mic wasn't working. And um, everything that could go wrong technologically went wrong with this recording. Um, now, I shouldn't say that because I'm sure there's more that could go wrong. But I've never had so many issues. And... Um, when Laura, the whatever mic Laura ended up using, there's a lot of feedback. When I talk, you can hear me, the echo, like from me talking in her mic. So I, I tried to edit most of that out. So I think it's, it's minimal now. Um, and there's another point where my mic went all wonky and, and I don't know if it was our internet connection or, um, but I've never had that happen before. And, it was all staticky, so I had to cut out part of the conversation. But you'll hear me. I actually just jump into the middle of our um, our recorded interview and explain that in the middle because I don't want you to be like, what the heck is she talking about? There was no question that this answer makes sense to follow up on. But aside from those issues, I thought this interview was incredible. Laura's a wonderful person. And... um. I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed talking to her and she's such an encourager. Um, I just want to say really quickly that after our interview ended, she stayed on the the call with me and just, we talked writing and she was, as a more seasoned author um, with quite a few books under her belt, she was so encouraging to me. That's probably enough of my voice raving about her. I'm sure you just want to hear her for yourself. So here is my conversation with Laura France. Laura, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Well, it's such a treat to join you. I'm a big fan of yours, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm a big fan of yours. You have a new novel, Tidewater Bride, releasing on January 5th. Can you tell us about this book? You know, in, a, in four words, it's the colonial American dating game, but <laughs> I'll delve a little deeper. <laughs> It's, it, you know, if you could just sum the novel up in a couple of short, snappy sentences, it would be um, the Virginia colony's most eligible spinster reconsiders the colony's most eligible tobacco bride or tobacco lord and widower while matchmaking for the newly arrived tobacco brides in Jamestown. How's that for short and sweet? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great way to sum it up. Um, what inspired you to write this novel? Well, you know, I've always been a huge fan of, of Virginia, 
the state. Um, I'm from Kentucky. And at one time, uh, Kentucky was part of Virginia. Virginia claimed it. So, uh, you know, that history, Kentucky history is always tied to that um, amazing state. And some of my favorite historical heroes like George Washington, George Rogers Clark, and my favorite historical heroines like Pocahontas came from Virginia. So it's easy since it was founded um, so early, 1607 is when Jamestown came into being, when those first settlers uh, set foot there. Uh, there's there's right. so much to choose from or to write about. The problem is I'll, I'll, I'll be buried before I can do it all. So that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. So um, Native Americans play a large role in this book. How did you navigate writing about this culture? Do you have Native American heritage? I do. Actually, my um, my great-grandfather on my mother's side was Cherokee, not Powhatans, you know, not like the, the nation you find in Tidewater Bride, right. a different tribe still um, along the eastern seaboard. So I've... Um, always been fascinated by the fact that I have that heritage, Cherokee heritage, but I, we know so little about it because it was sadly not talked about in my family. And he was listed on the census records as illegitimate and his parentage unknown, which, you know, that was just the, their way in the 19th century of trying to um, take care of, of you know, that type of an issue, but it was a big challenge researching the Powhatan tribe um, because it it consists of many, um, many Native Americans that go by many different names. So, and it, Powhatan just happened to be the, the chief um, or the Indian tribe that, that kind of sat or controlled the other tribes in that region. So they had the most power and they were just all lumped together and named as Powhatan. So I had to uh, chuck all my learning historically that had been in air. You know, much of what we learn about Pocahontas and her people is just flat out not true or it's right. been sugarcoated or it's been revised. You know, revisionist history is a big thing, sadly. And, and we that's coming to light now. But I relied on the narrative of Pocahontas's own people to tell her story and um, researched with all of that in mind and tried to toss all that I had learned about her and her story. And, And so I included that as much as I could in um, Tidewater Bride. But but just it's just a kind of a nutshell because it's the Powhatan history is just huge and comprehensive. Right. Can you go into more detail about how Pocahontas's story plays into this novel? Well, it's it was interesting because really what I'm writing about as far as Pocahontas in this story is it's I'm writing about a, a woman that's no longer living, a dead woman. Um, right. You know, at the time of the novel, uh, my hero is basically the template for him is John Rolfe, which was uh, Pocahontas's, you know, English husband. Um, mm-hmm. We found or I found in the Powhatan history that she had been married prior to that. Oh. Um, her husband oh. was killed by the English 
And she became, um, for lack of a better word, a victim of child trafficking in Jamestown. Not pretty history, not what we were taught. Uh, She had a child then out of wedlock um, with one of Jamestown's foremost leaders. And then to um, John Roth pretty much just stepped in and helped cover up that situation and as I kind of show in the in this novel. So it was yes. it was a challenge taking Pocahontas' history. I didn't call her Pocahontas in the novel. Um, I used an Indian name and trying to weave her history in, though she was deceased in the novel, dealing with her widower and then the woman her widower remarries, who happened to be uh, Pocahontas's best friend in the book. How confusing is that, right? <laughs> a little bit, but it was such a good, it was a great story. And even hearing you talk about that you're actually using more of the, the real history of Pocahontas in the book, that's that's great. That's good that it's coming to light in that way, even though like you use different names. Why did you choose to use different names for the characters? When I first broached the story with my my publisher a couple years ago, I wanted to tell it, I was ignorant, and I wanted to tell it, the story about Pocahontas, using Pocahontas as the main character. Mm. And my editor wisely said, "I mm, maybe not a good idea. And and really, I've I've used Daniel Boone in past books, and Rebecca Boone, and and you know George Washington, Patrick Henry show up in the Lace Maker, things like that. And I I really we can't do those people justice. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do Pocahontas justice. I'm not Native American, even though I can claim a tiny bit of Cherokee. Um, I I think you almost do a disservice if you try to write from the perspective of a historical figure. So I only do snippets of them. And I thought it was wiser to have her story told kind of in hindsight with her buried. Um, I didn't plan on that. I wanted to make her a living part of that novel. I think Pocahontas shows up in Watsika, the little Indian girl in the novel who is part of the peace exchange. She's a peace child. I think a lot of Pocahontas was in her. Um, but I didn't intend for, to tell her story where she's not, not there just in hindsight, but that's how it worked out. And I think, I think it works, but it's, it's an unusual maybe way of telling her history. Mm. Yeah. So I loved all the references to Selah's mother's garden, the, the specific flowers and the descriptions of the plants and the flowers. Um, are you an avid gardener yourself? I am. In fact, we have a garden that's bigger than our house. But people are like, wow. And I say, well, our house is tiny. It's a cottage. (laughs) But we, my husband built it actually 20, almost 30 years ago. But anyway, our garden is bigger than our house. I'm staring out the window. My writing desk is lovely. It's in this area where I overlook the garden. And the garden, our garden is the joy of my life. Sadly, in Washington State, there's not a lot that grows well here, um, but we do we we do pretty well on the cold crops. So I love herbs, flowers. I um, am happiest when I'm outside in my garden. And Sela's mother actually was 
a woman in Jamestown. She was known as the master gardener. And when I read that, uh, you know, there weren't many women in Jamestown, but she had a, she was a woman of influence. She was documented in um, the narrative of that time and historical records. And I thought, this woman is a woman to be reckoned with, and she belongs in this novel. So it was fun to make Sila's mother a master gardener and give Sila a little, a little bit of a heart for the soil too. Right. Yeah, that's cool. So what do you hope readers will learn from this book? I was thinking about all the the plot twists and the ups and downs the novel takes. I hope readers, and I think this can be said of all my books, really, some more than others, Jamestown was an amazing story of survival. I didn't dwell on that too much because it is Christian historical fiction, and you can't make it too sordid. But I, I think... I hope readers see that Sila and her family and their faith survive their circumstances. Um, Sila, hopefully this is not a spoiler, could have lost her life in the novel a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And um, she persevered. She was that kind of woman. And that kind of grit, uh, you know, paired with faith is what founded our country. Yes, that's so true. So you've written about several different time periods and locations. What is your research process like? You know, I'm currently involved in researching an all Scottish novel set entirely in Scotland, not coming to America like my abound heart, which started in Scotland. And then, you know, they got on the boat like so many of our ancestors did, and they floated away to the colonies. Mm -hmm. Um, This time I get to stay in Scotland and it's a challenge to me because I'm using my, I'm the eighth great granddaughter of, in the Hume family of the, the, this amazing border family in Scotland that is still well known. And so I'm trying to write their history in this novel. And that's a huge challenge to me because it's 1715. It's another Jacobite uh, uprising when they're trying battling over who will be king um, over there. And so there's just vast volumes to draw from. My favorite thing to do, the, our library has been closed. So I haven't been able to do interlibrary loan, which I really like to do. And so I just order, I have quite a book bill for this, this next novel. And um, I liken it to, I've been researching now for a couple of months. I take copious notes. I'm a handwriter of my novels too. Um, I I just read and reflect, pray, take copious notes, study, study my notes. Like I'm taking a test before I write the first word. And I also have to come up with character names and I can't write, you know, until I have the names in mind, which, and I like the names and they're true to the time period. Yeah. And, um, I can't, I can't do anything. And I liken all that research to preparing like a holiday meal. Um, you, you have to have all the ingredients at, at hand. You have to have done a thorough job before you sit down at the table. You know, I kind of, it's a lot of prep. And then when I finally, I'm getting ready to sit down and write, it's like preparing a feast, but you have to do your homework because you have to have your mind full of that history in order to draw from especially for historical writers. You know, you can't sit down and just guess. You have to kind of cram like you're taking a test 
and then ask the Lord for help recalling what you need. <laughs> yeah. It sounds excruciating, yeah. right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Not my husband thinks I'm crazy. He he just he's an all he's a logger man. He's all outdoors, you know, think Paul Bunyan. He just looks at me and shakes his head. Um, but God gives us differently. So Yes, that's true. Hey friends, I just wanted to jump in here and explain that this is where my mic went wonky and got all staticky, so I had to cut out some of the conversation, not very much, but it might sound a little disjointed, so I thought I would explain that um, next Laura is talking about what she loves about historical fiction. That's why I love historical fiction. You know, the process, and as a historical writer, you can say the same thing, you learn so much. It's like an, an ongoing education you're never a master. You're always, I think the thrill of learning and the research yes. just is very special. And and like I said, I, it's a gift. Not everybody wants to sit down with an encyclopedia or whatever <laughs> and spend hours reading. But I did that when I was a child. And, you know, I think there's just writers have this, historical writers have this innate love of, um, history and the language and the customs and the traditions. You know, I couldn't write contemporary romance to save my life, uh, though there are many fine contemporary romance writers out there. And sadly, I don't, I almost never read anything but historicals Mm -hmm. for the reason you mentioned, which is you learn so much from them. Right. Um, so could we go back in time? Can you tell us the path your writing has taken? Have you always loved to write? I have. My earliest memories really intersect with reading. I remember vividly when I was seven and began reading avidly, standing in the little library of my elementary just feeling like I was a kid in a candy shop because all these little historical biographies were in front of me and, you know, Pocahontas, Daniel Boone, Dolly Madison, and uh, those type mm-hmm. little books for children. And I remember I would just sigh when I had gone through them all and I, you know, would reread them again. So it started, you know, like age seven. And my mother came into my dad's office one day and she said I was writing a story about ships and I had like the encyclopedia lying open because my grandmother, bless her, was an encyclopedia dealer and a teacher. And so I was always toting around that kind of stuff and found it fascinating. But it go it goes deep. Now, did I want to publish when I came of age? No. Publishing, I had no desire to publish. Mm. Writing for me was like, I don't want to say therapy, but I think writing is therapy in a way. Yes. Um, I didn't want to share it with the world. It would be like handing you my journals. I used to keep avid journals. I have like, I burned like 50 of them a couple of years ago, not because there was anything bad about them. It was just, I'm private Mm. and, and publishing pushes you past that privacy and makes you a public person, even if you're not a, you know, not a, uh, the Harry Potter author. And I'm, you know, that's a very public persona, but even to be public in a small way, like I am, takes a tremendous courage. And for an introvert like me who thrives on solitude, um, it's, that's not an easy leap to make to publishing. Right. Um, so how did you, how did you make that leap to getting published? How did you first get published? Well, you know, 
my brother shamed me. My brother's a pastor. He's been on the mission field in Spain and different parts of the world for like the last 28 years. And I mean, and this was, you know, 15 years ago when I had finished writing my debut novel, The Frontiers, which became The Frontiersman's Daughter. And it just was for my own pleasure. It took 10 years to write that. I just love living with Lael in the woods. You know, she was my heroine. I'd written other novels, but she was the one that uh, kind of celebrated my ancestry and my love for my Kentucky, my state. Um, but my brother, he came out to visit one summer and he said to me, I was pecking away at a typewriter, or, or excuse me, a laptop somebody had actually given me because I, we didn't even have, um, we didn't have Wi-Fi or anything then because mm-hmm. um, we lived by the gateway of Olympic National Park and it just wasn't here yet. Wow. So we lived remote, but my brother came and he said, listen, you, you have been giving a, I think you've been given a gift. I've spent my whole life as your younger brother watching you peck out stories and you just shove them in a drawer. He said, you know, how do you basically, how are you going to account for that? Um, if you've give, been given a gift, you have to steward the gift. You have to share it, you know. And I was like, no. I said, I don't have an agent. I'm not even online. You know, this is a borrowed computer. I've never been to a writer's conference. I don't have any writing contacts. I don't, I don't really care to have anything like that. I just write for my own pleasure. But something flipped like a switch in me. I began to see that as a very selfish thing. Mm. You know, if God gives you a gift, how selfish is it to just hoard it, to sit on it? Um, So I said, well, I turned to my brother, Chris. I said, I will um, show you how hard it is. I don't even have an agent. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever get one. And I... That's the gateway to getting into publishing. So I went through the Writer's Edge, which is like a a manuscript submission service. And this was about 13 years ago, I I guess. And I did it to prove to my brother that it it was harder than he made it sound to, to break into publishing. You know, I thought I'd just turn around and say, see, I tried. So just let's park this and I could go back to writing in the closet and not um, share it. And believe it or not, within six months, I had a three book contract with Ravel. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and the, so they literally, my my head editor at Ravel, Andre Doring, she was on the website for the Writer's Edge one day and read my uh, sample, whatever chapter I guess it was. And she had transitioned from. I think she, she was with um, the big book club back then. I think it was called Crossings. She was their editorial director, and she transitioned to Ravel over a period of months, and she kept me in mind for six months or so, and then she contacted me, and they offered me a three-book deal. I thought it was going to be a one-book deal. That's what I was hoping for, and then just bow out once again. <laughs> But that's not how it works. And so the Lord gets all the credit for, for any of that. And, you know, he's a, adjusted my attitude so that I'm thankful to be able to use the gift he gave me. It's certainly not me. I can't tell you how to write a novel. I couldn't teach. Craft books confuse me. <laughs> it's all definitely a gift. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you said you write first draft, you write. Um, longhand? 
Yes, I do. I, you know, and you, you, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know this. There's a huge um, difference between writing longhand and, you know, that side of your brain is, is very much the creative side. Yes. And it engages and actually flips a switch, so to speak, and ideas pour forth. Whereas if you type or you even dictate or whatever people do when they write, not many people write longhand, I don't think anymore. I'm a, I'm a bit of a uh, antique that way. But I found editing, that editing side of the brain is kind of unfriendly and ideas don't flow as well. I can do it because in certain times of my career, the last couple of years, um, well, I had to care for my mom at one point. She has Alzheimer's, but I had to rely on just going to the laptop and and not writing longhand to save time. And I I think it's okay, but it's not my preferred way to connect. When you are writing longhand, I mean, there's this intimacy with the paper and you just, you know, the words just pour out. It's just hard to explain. Um, not dissing writers who do it differently. I probably should get on board there, but I'm, I'm always happiest when I write. My hand never cramps. I can write for hours. But when I try to write a thank you note or a letter, my hand cramps immediately. So interesting. Wow. You're not the only writer I've heard say this. And I, I do. I know myself that um, if, I, if I get stuck on a path, sometimes I'll start writing a rough draft in longhand. Or if I get stuck and I don't know what to do with a certain scene or something, I will switch to longhand. I have never, well, I should say since I was very young, I have never written a whole rough draft longhand, but um, I've heard enough people talk about it that I wonder if I should do that instead. Well, I encourage you to try it, but you know, only if you have the time. What I love to do, and it's very satisfying, and I don't even know why it's satisfying. When I start a novel, after I've researched to death and kind of crammed like for an exam before I sit down to write that first chapter, um, I love what I, what I found works best for me. I used to write the whole novel out in longhand. Mm. But now I think there's a momentum that gets going. I, I'll write a couple of chapters. And then if I feel like I'm, you know, the well's kind of gone dry a little bit, I will type those chapters in um, to my laptop yeah, and then start that word file and which turns it more into editing mode. Now I tend to never go back and read that first draft uh, I don't read what I've put on the file, the Microsoft Word file. I I just keep writing and building on that file without going back and editing it because that somehow kills my creative process. But like I said, everybody's different. Right. And I know people that edit the entire way through a manuscript. But I'm I've heard the old time writers say, you know, just just get that first draft out. It's probably it's terrible, mm-hmm. but just get it out. You know, editing, editing comes later. And I'm developing a love of latent love of editing. When I wrote for years from like seven to 40 before my novels were published, I literally was a first draft writer. There's a first draft love. There's that rush where you're just so in love with your characters, your story, everything. But I never edited it. I would finish the first draft and throw it in the closet. I would never look at it again. I would move to the next story. Um, which tells you a little bit about 
my writing process, editing is painful to me. It's very boring. Um, but, and that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm just tearing my hair out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually like, I prefer editing for the most part, but, but I actually, I, I think I'm developing a, a latent love for writing the first draft. Oh, good. Yeah. First draft love is like, you know, kind of like falling in yes. love. Editing though, it has wonderful strengths. They're, I love the the second or third draft when you're going over the story and you see ways to enrich mm-hmm. it, you know, with a turn of phrase or a word or, you know, you just deepen and enrich it somehow, which you can never do in a first or second, you know, second pass usually. Right. Um, that polishing is very special. And uh, I never read my books when they come out. Like I would give anything to be a reader and sit down and read Tidewater Bride. <laughs> I love the story. And I don't say that about Oh, well, I love all my stories, but there's some that are like colicky babies, as my agent, <laughs> Janet Grant, says. They're just colicky, and you're not real, you know, it's a lot to to get it out there. But I love Tidewater Bride. I hope that, you know, not everybody's going to love it. It's not a perfect novel, but it uh, hopefully that love that the author has for her work, it carries through to the reader. Um, yes. Hopefully. You know, the reception so far it's been warm, but I don't know how it will be received. Hopefully I just pray about it and leave the results to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So I understand you've won a Christie award. That's one of the most prestigious awards in the Christian publishing industry. Can you tell me what this experience was like? The Christie award to me has such meaning because, you know, it, ties to Catherine Marshall, who's one of my heroines of the yes. faith. I, as I, I grew up, we had a lot of Catherine Marshall books in the house. My mom was in, one of her biggest fans. Mm-hmm. And so I would read her work. And I remember reading Christie. I was probably 15, maybe at the time. And it just made a tremendous impact on me. It, it was all that a novel should be, you know, it was long, it was rich in uh, detail, it was not sugar-coated, um, but it had that strong spiritual message. Um, so the Christie Award, because of Catherine Marshall and her legacy, it, it's just, it is kind of the pinnacle. And I, I had finaled for uh, Love's Reckoning for the Christie, and I I missed it. And I never thought to be up there again. And I actually went to Nashville Mm -hmm. uh, with no expectations. And, you know, you just, you have these high hopes that you might win because I think I I used to say, oh, if I won the Christie even one time, I would, I could retire, you know, kind of die happy because like you said, it's kind of the, the, the award and um but it really ties back to the lord you know he gave me the gift of writing and so he gave me that you know the christie award is is in recognition of his gift really not mine i just finally was a faithful uh, tried to be faithful and obedient and and to the gift he gave me um and it really honors the christie is his mm. and it's sitting here in my window uh, I can see the garden through it because it's beautiful and it's all glass. And I think what a wonderful thing if I could just relive that, that moment. Um, 
But anyway, I'm very thankful. And, and Stan Jantz and the Christie people are just, are just top notch. Mm, that's wonderful. So um, you're writing something new now, I or you're in the editing stages of a new novel now. Is that right? Correct. You know, one thing I say sometimes is that I'm always three books ahead of readers. Oh, and this is a challenge because I do. I meet with. I met with a book club recently about an uncommon woman, which is my last frontier novel, and I'm three books ahead of them. And so they wanted to talk about details, and I'm I'm so far removed from that. So three books ahead. What does that mean? It means that I have a book coming out that I'm doing publicity for. I have a book that I'm editing that I turn in January 5th, a full-length historical novel about 418 pages set in Colonial Williamsburg and um, with a ship's captain hero and a chocolatier heroine. She's delightful. And she has a chocolate shop on the harbor and her the love of her life comes sailing in after a 10-year absence. So it's a little bit different twist on a love affair. And I'm editing that to hand it in soon while researching, cramming for this historical exam that's going to become this next Scottish novel. And um, it just it's, it's always a challenge, never enough to ours, though I have empty, we have empty nest recently, just the two of us. And a little more time than we used to. Right. Wow. That is that's amazing to be three books ahead. I and I can't imagine editing one novel while researching for the next one. Yeah, you probably probably would have a hard time talking to the book club about a book that seems like it's old news. Yeah, and, it, and sometimes it's funny. It's not really funny, but it is funny. You get your heroes' names a little mixed <laughs> up, or their horses, you know, and are you call the heroine by the wrong name? Are you? They'll ask you, you know, rightfully so, because they're immersed in the story. They they've freshly read it. Most of them. Uh, somebody will ask you about a detail, and you'll, you know, if you're three books ahead, it's, you know, you you that detail is not fresh. And um, it, you know, it's a challenge. It's it's always a challenge, very humbly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have a question that I ask every guest, and it's how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Oh, what a terrific question! One thing that's very sad to me right now. I'm 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 a DAR member, Daughters of the American Revolution. And I love their commitment to mm. history and they're keeping history alive, their honor of veterans, their service projects and things like that. Um, that are, and I'm especially grieved because I'm a, I'm a support Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty common knowledge right now that Americans have lost touch with their roots. They know very little about our founding. Um, they fail right. history classes regarding our history, um, especially the 18th century, you know, and our founding fathers and mothers. And that's very sad to me. So in order to really live well, we have to know and have an appreciation of our past. Um, we, we have to know what the Constitution says. We need to know when the Constitution's been being infringed upon, which is currently happening um, um, amid this pandemic. Um, most Americans don't know that. So, 
you know, mm-hmm. for our future, we need to know what our founding was about. Um, it can be complex. It takes time. Not everybody likes likes history, but you know they they still teach civics in school. And I was delighted a couple of years ago. Um, I heard from a teacher, and he left reviews on Amazon that they're using some of my books in his history classes, um, which oh. which really surprised me. And then I I've had notes from students that have said, "Wow." you know, I can't imagine them using my books. I mean, there's far better authors, Pulitzer Prize winning historians that deserve to be in the classroom. But to the fact that my history might uh, become dear to a student and give them a lifelong appreciation for our, our founding and what men and women sacrificed and died for, that's a very humbling thing. My writing, first and foremost, um, is just to keep history alive, to make it relatable and readable. And I pray mm. my books do that. Well, they definitely do. I think you're too humble. Laura, it was wonderful talking with you. How can listeners purchase your new book? Well, you know, Baker uh, Publishing Group has my books for sale on their site, and they have a wonderful um, Baker Bookhouse is now running a sale 40% off on my novel and free shipping. The novel arrived is arrived in the warehouse as of this morning at Baker oh. Publishing or Baker Bookhouse. So they have first dibs on it, so to speak. They mailed it out uh, first last year. And um, I, the, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, Christianbook.com, Kobo, it's recorded books has picked up the audio and the audio version will be available in February 11th, I believe. But my website is laurafrance.net and I'm very active on social media. I'm on Facebook, but my social media of choice is Instagram. I post probably more on Instagram. I'm a Twitter dropout. So Me I too. don't do much on. Oh yeah, historical writers can't be bothered with Twitter, right? I know. <laughs> too short and sweet. But mm-hmm. I invite you to connect with me if you you know and try one of my books if you're new to my books and if um, intersect with me on social media. It would just make my day. Awesome! Thank you so much for taking this time with us today. Oh, you are a delight, and I just love your love your voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh my goodness, these guests know how to get into my good graces by complimenting my voice. Wasn't that just wonderful? I loved talking to Laura. So make sure you go pre-order her book, Tidewater Bride, her new book. I will have links in the show notes to all the places you can buy it. Um, I mean, maybe not all the places, but a few of the places you can buy it. So you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And friends, I feel like a broken record here when I ask you to leave a review, but it would really help the show. If you like the show, go find Historical Fiction Unpacked on whatever platform you use. Um, In Apple Podcasts, it's pretty... I don't want to say it's easy because it's kind of a pain, but you scroll down to the bottom of all the the whole list of episodes and down there is where you find where you can leave a star reading and review. 
Also, a lot of times I I try on episode release day, which is normally Thursday, but this week it's Wednesday. I try to get in my Instagram stories and talk about the show. Um, I think I have not done that for a few weeks. And it's partly just the craziness of Christmas time. Um, Because this episode is releasing December 23rd. I didn't want to release it on Christmas Eve. I decided to release on Wednesday instead this week. But if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm just at Allison Treat. Speaking of Christmas, it's only a few days away now. And I hope you're all going to have a good one. I know you probably hear it way too much. These are unprecedented times or this year has been so crazy and so difficult. Um, But it's true. And I know that this year has been hard for a lot of you. I don't know if any of you have lost people to COVID. Um, My heart just breaks for you if that's the case, or if you've lost someone to anything. Um, That makes the holidays really difficult. Um, I just want to wish you the best Christmas you can have. I hope you can find a way to remember what it's truly about is Jesus coming to earth, becoming a man for us so that we can know him and so that you can spend eternity with God. So I hope you find the best way for you to celebrate that and that you have joy and hope this Christmas season. Since Laura France's books are so much about the beginning of our nation, and she talked a lot about that during the interview, I wanted to read a quote about the Constitution. I I had a really hard time narrowing it down, um, but I finally landed on a quote by John Adams from 1798. He said, Our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So guys, have a Merry Christmas, and I hope you get some great new historical fiction reads as gifts. 